Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing. Projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today, we're back with a special episode with another rare punk claimer, Punk1519, with a single atty, the messy hair. He's an OG punk claimer, currently the number six punk holder with 144 punks including a super rare ape and zombie. He's got probably one of the most aesthetic and beautiful punk collections I've seen. Please welcome the legendary collector, creator, and artist, Sov, to the show. Sov, how are you? Hey, Max. Super glad to be here. Lovely to have you, man. Like, um, I think uh, I'm getting through some punk claimers, and I think they're getting more rare as we as time goes on. So, um really excited to have this conversation with you and uh especially about your collection i think w- one of your punks keeps popping up um in conversation around you know what's your favorite punk uh on on, on the podcast quite often and it's the the wild white with the vr that you've got uh which is an absolute stunner right that's because you had noah on i know noah, uh, <laughs> noah noah's always telling me how much she uh admires that punk. It, it, it is a beautiful punk um but yeah, well, well, thank you so much for joining Punkcast, man. And um, uh, I think we've got a fair bit to sort of discuss today. But if you wouldn't mind just you know sharing what you could about your background, not going into too deep, but um, maybe just you know from how you got into crypto, if we can start from there, and we can sort of talk talk that one through. Um, yeah, sure. Perhaps maybe actually I'll, I'll start in the middle a little bit, um, and then backtrack a little bit to the earlier crypto part um, because that might be a little bit more relevant to the part story. Uh, so I've been I've been in crypto for a few years. Um, when 2017 came around, which was, um, as we all know, when Punk started that summer, and I was in the Pepe chat, and that's how I'm not sure how many of your uh, your other interviewees were also there, but um, that's where I found out about the Mashable article. So someone was just in the Pepe chat posting about it, and it seemed like a great idea. So I I linked over to the Punk's site. Um, and that was the introduction of that. Like anything, then it, it wasn't exactly that smooth because, you know, we were we were barely using wallets there. I don't even I'm not even sure that I had a MetaMask at that point. And it was also a busy day. There was an ICO going on, so I think the funds I transferred were stuck in transaction for six or seven hours. So I had to just sit there and wait. Nice. Uh, the um, Pepe chat. How did you get into that? And what what was that? The Pepe chat, that was the Telegram channel where people were trading rare Pepe's uh, on Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin chain. And so I was there because I was a Pepe cash holder. I think this is my biggest DGen play, but I was, I, was, <laughs> I was really enjoying Pepe cash. And once you got into Pepe cash, you figured out that Pepe cash was the currency for rare Pepe's. And so that was my whole in- introduction to basically token-based artwork. So I was in there probably a month or two before Punks launched. 
And it was really interesting because they had they had a nice community. They had a lot of interactions. They had, they had giveaways. They had auctions. They had uh, people talking and sharing their um, Pepe art in the Telegram channel. So you could see for the first time that this kind of um, digital art was going to work because it was working there and people were excited about it and people were you know, transacting with them and trading the back and forth and the art was cool. And so it was really like, a, it was a proof of work for digital art. So just out of curiosity as well, how did you find out about the Pepe chat and what sort of drew you into that, that sort of realm? I mean, like Pepe was pretty niche back then, right? Yeah, I think so. It's hard to remember. Um, I mean, I'm not even sure how I found Pepe Cash, like a lot of things back then. But, you know, during 2017, there were just so many projects and coins floating around, and it was an exciting time to explore things. So, like I said, once you had Pepe Cash, I think there was one exchange that was, there's one defunct exchange that was trading Pepe Cash in the world. And through their, uh, you know, chat box, Probably there was something about where other people were meeting to talk about digital art, the rare Pepe's. Mm. So Pepe Cash, was that, um, is that like another fungible sort of token on, block, on Bitcoin or something? Or how did that? Have you, heard, have you heard about it before? Not Pepe Cash. Like I've, I've, bought, a, I've, bought, I've bought some rare Pepe's through Counterparty, but that's still using Bitcoin, right? Um, I don't think I've heard of Pepe Cash before. Right. So um, I'm not exactly sure about the chronology, but um, I think Pepe Cash was an airdrop. That is the first Pepe currency, for one thing, back in 2017, or maybe even 2016. Was, it, was this on Bitcoin or on... Yeah, it was uh, because, uh, no, it was on Bitcoin because Ethereum was still pretty young and not that much was happening on Ethereum at that point. So I believe in 2016, sometime, Pepe Cash on Bitcoin was airdropped to holders of rare Pepe's, the artworks, as a way to trade the Pepe's that they had with some kind of a currency. I could be wrong, but I think that's the general idea. So I arrived in 2017, liked the whole concept, got some Pepe Cash on the one exchange that was trading it. And probably found out about the Telegram through that. And like I said, it really showed that digital art worked. Um, the one thing that became an obstacle was that it, you had to use Bitcoin transaction fees to trade every Pepe. And so that was the, that was the summer where uh, Bitcoin fees really went through the roof. And so you might have, as later you had on Ethereum, but you had like maybe... 40, 50, $100 or more transaction fees. And nobody wanted to trade their, you know, 10, 5, 20, $100 Pepe when you have likewise fees. So that really, that really slowed the Pepe market at that point. And um, how did you get into crypto? Like- so I, I w- I, in 2013, I went to a, um, a Bitcoin meetup and I was fortunate enough to, to be at a meetup where um, Andreas Antonopoulos was one of the presenters. And um, as you probably know, he's, he's one of the most lucid Bitcoin experts in the world. And uh, so, you know, immediately within 10 minutes, I understood that um, this is revolutionary and sort of the future of money. That was the introduction I got. A lucky one. 
Nice. And then what were the next steps that you took from there? Buying the 2014 top, watching it go all the way back down with 200. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, got in a bit at the wrong time and then had a painful you know, year and a half or so just watching the price go downward. But anyway, I was in and, you know, like I understand. Once you kind of get in, then you're, uh, you're aware of other things happening. So, $200 Bitcoin doesn't sound uh, too bad uh, given, this, given today's prices. But, um, uh, and that, that was 2013, man. So that was like super, super early. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, it felt late at the time because, um, I mean, it's all relative, I guess. You know, you meet people who were at the time earlier, had been there for a couple of years. and. Um, like, you know, it doesn't seem really until time passes. What, what if we all think that, uh, I mean, we, I feel late on a lot of things right now, but hopefully, uh, next five to 10 years that changes as well, but, um, we'll see. Right. So, so you got into Bitcoin in 2013, in 2017, um, you found your way into the Rare Pepe chat and Telegram group, and that's how you came across the Mashable article. Yeah, correct. One other thing too is, do, do you remember anybody else hanging out in that Pepe chat from 2017 that's still around today? No, I don't. It's, um, I mean, I was happy to be there. I didn't really make any close contacts though. So, you know, I mean, the, you know, the founders of Rare Pepe are around, they're, uh, they're on Twitter and so on. I don't, I don't know anyone else really a personal little chat. Yeah. Cause, um, I, I think in the recent, uh, documentary, short documentary with Matt and John, I think they, they mentioned that uh, they were inspired by Pepe for punks. So um, I'm not sure if they were sort of hanging, floating around in there as well. And I think I had snacks on and he said he went to one of the Pepe meetups in New York city. And that's how he met Matt and John at that uh, Pepe uh, meetup. Uh, I think that's when token angels spent a fair sizable amount of money on uh, one of the Pepe pieces. There yeah. As well. Yeah. That was after the punks launch, I believe. So that was still 2017. Yeah, I, I was I was pretty new to everything uh, digital art related at that point. So even if Matt and John were there, I wouldn't have even known them. Probably. I mean, it was it was a great introduction, and like I said, the only thing that happened was that the fees skyrocketed towards the end of 2017, which which really made it hard to to continue to trade the trade the pepes trade the assets. Um, which was interesting because that's when punks launched, and of course Ethereum fees were ten cents at that time. So, um, how nice! It was, uh, you know, I mean, sure there was congestion later, but at the time Ethereum was where you could trade trade things easily. And so, two thousand seventeen, you bought some ETH as well. Like, were you, you know, coming from the Bitcoin sort of space? Was it easy for you to get into ETH and wrap your head around what ETH was? Yeah, it was. Okay, if you want to talk about things that your people were late to, I was late to ETH. I always regretted that a little bit because, um, because I was late to a meetup with uh, Vitalik. So I was somewhere where Vitalik was going to go, come give a meetup. And usually I get there early and sort of, you know, um, get a seat near the front and kind of tune in what's going on. It was before Ethereum had launched. It was still an idea. But it was, but people were excited about it. I think, and for whatever reason, I was I was late that day, and so I had to squeeze in near the back of 
this rather larger building and it was really difficult to hear in the back. So I really didn't get the gist of what Vitalik was talking about and I, I didn't get the download. I missed the download on Ethereum because I was sitting too far back and I couldn't hear. So, you know, they had the uh, the swap where you could swap one Bitcoin for 2,000 Ether. I wasn't really on that. And then what, did, you, did you come from an art background at all or was it or collectibles sort of background? Like how did sort of Pepe's digital artwork, token-based sort of artwork make sense to you? Yeah, well, I came from a self-interested art background, you know, growing up, I guess, in my 20s. Starting in my 20s, I spent a lot of time in museums and educated myself on art, um, all kinds of different arts, sort of my main occupation for a little while. But um, I didn't know that digital art was going to work. Really, it was in the chat with Pepe's that you could see that it was working because people were happy to earn digital assets and there was a way to trade them. So I had no idea that digital assets were going to work. It was just that, you know, as part of something where they were working and that people were happy to pay, you know, different amounts for different artworks. And um, and when I bought a few Pepe's myself, like, I thought, I think that's always, you know, sort of the test when you do something yourself and you can see the psychological reaction that you have to owning something that at the time was quite new because it wasn't physical. And you weren't really sure if it was going to work until you did it yourself. And then you could see that the ownership feeling uh, was exactly the same as if you owned something physical. I think that's one of the most interesting things about the whole beginning of this digital art movement is that, and it gets forgotten a lot in what I see written about these days, is that you know, even claiming one of the punks for, for free and paying some transaction fees felt, um, I don't want to say risky, but like, you know, you didn't know if it was going to be worth anything at all. You didn't know if, if buying a digital asset was completely throwing your money away. And I think many people, most people sort of shared that feeling more or less. Um, I know I stopped claiming after, oh, I'd spent like $100 in transaction fees. And when I got to that level, I kind of put a pause on claiming for a while of the punks because, you know, it, I said to myself, you know, you weren't sure if you'd just burned out dollars. In terms of, uh, maybe we could start talking about the, the claiming process as well, but um, how many punks did you actually claim? Right. Um, so I claimed 72 in the first, my first kind of go around. And that seemed like a nice place to stop. They had they had the leaderboard even then, so you could you could kind of see where you were relative to other people who were interested. Um, I don't know. I don't. After seventy two, I was somewhere in the top ten, I guess. And it said it seemed like enough. I, I think I came back later in the day, and I was down to maybe like the twenties because people had really piled in, and um, so I I jumped in for another round and got to one hundred eight. Nice. So 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 you claim eventually claimed 108 all, all up and the rest you, you basically just bought right yeah so um once the claiming is over there was a couple of days where we had to like uh, i guess they redid it redid the contract and then then people could start trading and so i bought i bought 60 after that 
That's crazy. And um, I'm just looking at your um, CryptoPunks wallet. It's super clean. Uh, looks like you've only sold one out of uh, the 144 that you've got in this wallet. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that you've only just sold one. Did you have any other wallets at all? Or this is your one and only? Uh, no, I had the claimers wallet. So they were all in my claim wallet for a little while. And then I, I sold 19 in the claimers wallet. Then transferred the rest to the current wallet, which has only sold one since then. Oh, right. And then how were you thinking about, you know, trait selection and which punks to sort of go for? Because it's just interesting to ask this question to most of the claims that started. Um, you know, I think I had uh, TJ came on and said that he was focused on numbers. Hember was basically going for whatever he could. Um, but it feels like you've actually took a bit of time to really you know, hand-select ones because I see a lot of red hairs. I see a lot of VRs, really aesthetically beautiful punks you've got in your collection. Like how are you sort of thinking through that process of claiming and also, you know, subsequently purchasing? Yeah, that's a great question. There was two phases. So one was the claim phase where more or less we were, we didn't know any of the data. We didn't really know how many about any any attributes there were except what you could physically see on the screen. My guiding principle there was just to try to collect the most beautiful punks that I could. And that meant just using my aesthetic eye basically and having a sense for the the ones that I had already claimed and how those formed a whole in the growing collection. Um, I wouldn't probably wouldn't use the word collection then, but just getting the sense. I remember like I would claim the number of certain trait and then I would move to a different trait to kind of keep a balance on the ones that I claimed. And I think, you know, without getting too much into it, that process just sort of formed this more colorful collection, I'd say. They, the, the punks in, in my collection tend to be a lot of white hairs, a lot of red hairs, quite a few blondes, uh, the VRs and um, the 3Ds. So I think I was attracted by bright, brighter type colors. Um, and then you, you end up seeing that in the 12 by 12 grid. There's, there's quite a bit of color. So, yeah. I was quite strict with myself about it because I remember not claiming many, many punks because I, I just didn't feel they were equal to the ones I'd already claimed. So I ended up, you know, pushing out my search further and further to ones that... Um, felt like they complimented the, the previous ones in terms of the beauty. Nice. I, I'm just going to um, pick out a couple that really stand up for me. I think there's an al albino with stringy hair, VR, and COVID mask that's really cool and unique. I haven't seen that combination before. I think he's got an earring too, actually. Punk 9636. Wait, is he the, is he the, uh, the VR stringy hair? Yeah, with the COVID mask. I think that one's really cool. Right. I love that guy. Never seen that combination before. Uh, just looks like uh, futuristic. It just feels like Matt and John were able to see into the future, right? With VR goggles and, uh, and the COVID mask. <laughs> right. You know, you know, I mean, that's what appealed to me a lot about this uh, 
project is that I think you're exactly right. They had an uncanny ability to pick traits that were um, futuristic as well as classic, and sometimes both, and universal in terms of different people can relate to different uh, hairstyles, you know, glass styles, smoking, non-smoking type of thing. So I think that's part of their, you know, signature artistry where they're able to um, make relatable and uh, current artworks. Yeah, totally. And it's almost like a nod to the past and a nod to the future, right? I think the, the pixels really relate to, I guess, I'm assuming a, a lot of collectors are uh, sort of the 30 to 40 year age bracket. So I think growing up with retro gamings, you know, probably resonates with them. But also at the same time, they, they, they have futuristic technology bent to them too, which is super, super appealing. I'm going to pick up another one too. So I think there's Punk 8222, 3D glasses, luxurious beard, cigarette, earring. Uh, this guy goes pretty hard too, man. Like he, uh, he looks really clean. Um, wait, I'm finding which row is he on? He's on the fourth from the bottom row. Oh, on the right. Yeah. Yeah. The five trait. Yeah. He's, uh, he's amazing too. Yeah. I, I, I really like him quite a bit. You know, the thing with having a larger collection is you don't, end up appreciating every single punk as much as you would like to. Um, I mean, I loved all these guys and gals, but I don't always get to spend as much time and look at everyone in the way to doing a deeper dive. So here's a question for you. I think on Twitter, you don't really have um, a punk as any particular punk as your identity. I think it's just a translucent orange background. Um, what? Why is that? Why haven't you sort of gone through and I think I think I've I mean the punk that I sort of mentioned today I think I sort of asked you to pick one out just to make it easier for me so I appreciate that but yeah you know, why, why haven't you sort of picked one out as a as an identity or favorite yeah I've never used a punk as an avatar I mean one of the reasons is there isn't one that I love about love more than all the others you know obviously honestly the, the main reason though is that I um I, I do feel that this NFT crypto art movement is so wonderful and beautiful because it's, it's available to everyone. And um, I don't know, there was a time in 2020, where people were, were using uh, their punk avatars and it was kind of like sort of a rich, a rich flex um, at the time. And, you know, people, it was kind of like a brag and that wasn't really a vibe that I could identify with. And so that's, that's actually when I joined Twitter. I wasn't on before 2021. And so I think that was part of what was happening during that year. And I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't want to represent myself uh, in the crypto art community that way. So I just, I picked a neutral color that I can identify with. Do you, do you still feel the same way today? Like that, that if you're rocking a punk, it, it automatically signals you're rich? No, it's it's changed, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you remember twenty twenty one. It was it was it was a bit, it was obnoxious a lot. Twenty twenty one was certain, obnoxious. Yeah, so I think it's changed because um, you know, like things have come down from the highs, and we're we're all in a different place now. So I, I don't feel that any anymore. 
but but the honest the honest thing is like what I love most of the punks is I do consider them a very excellent art form, and you know to me it wasn't obvious always obvious that like this is what I use for my avatar like that this is the reason that they're there. So it was never a connection that like I personally made, and I've never had I've never had the wanting to throw it up on Twitter in that way. Okay, I'm gonna now that you sort of brought up the topic, I think I'm gonna make a comment here that might piss off some some ape owners. But um, I, I sort of felt that was true for apes. You know, like the flex was there. I'm rich. It was a bit more obnoxious, but I think punks felt always understated. And it's more like if you know, you know. Uh, and I still feel like that today. Um, I think in 2021, if I if I remember, and I'm saying this as a, an ape owner too, by the way, uh, just resonate. Um, punks just resonate a lot more with me. But um, but in 2021, I think most of the events that I went to, um, most apes, you know, the first thing that they want you to know is that they own an ape. <laughs> um, whereas I think a punk is generally pretty understated. They're like, oh, cool, you know, uh, you got a punk. Oh, let's let's hang out or let's let's grab a drink or something like that. Um, it's it's a slightly different um vibe that i get from the two collections um and not sort of saying yeah. that that's representative of 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 all apes at all i know there are some pretty cool apes out there but um but that was just sort of the vibe that i got back in 2021 for sure there were there were a few different layers to the vibes and um I, I, there probably was more of that among the apes and the punks um but there was some among the punks as well like it's kind of a in the air kind of thing so, like in your whole collection, do do you know if you've got basically at least one of every single attribute, or are you missing any? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. Um, it's not not even close, really. I mean, I have a lot of attributes, but I never made it a goal to collect every attribute, and there's a number of them I don't even like. So I either sold them, got rid of them, or uh, or never collected them. So I mean, you know, one of the first ones I sold were my two pigtails. Because uh, I just wasn't into pigtails, so I sold those in twenty twenty, probably. Yeah. Well. Um, so, 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 what is like your favorite trait? Like, do you have like key favorite traits? Yeah. Um, I'm partial to tiaras. I've always been sad that they weren't more appreciated. Tiaras are cool. I think they're, they're just so rare, though, and niche that they probably just don't get a lot of airtime. Maybe it might have something to do with the uh, gender inequality in the crypto art space too. In terms of female female traded punks, may not get the attention they deserve. But I always loved TRs. They were the ones that I tried to look out for during claiming and also the initial buy period. Um, it turns out, I guess I like the the crazy hairs quite a bit because I, there's 24 crazy hairs. 12 male and 12 female, coincidentally. And I claimed 22 of them. So I, apparently I liked those during the claim phase. Yeah, they're cool. Um, yeah. 3Ds are great. Um, 3Ds are always a classic. 3Ds are yeah. ours. But uh, the wild whites, I love the wild whites as well uh, that you've got. Wild whites too. I think when, during the uh, my buying phase, the orange hairs were artistically my favorite i think the way it just comes down on one side and the color they chose in, re in relation to the background blue um is 
beautiful in my mind. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny, the orange sides don't get a lot of airtime either. Um, no, they don't. Uh, but they are, they are really cool. Yeah. Um, Why do you think that is? I've, I've no idea. Um, maybe because they're actually quite rare, right? I think, uh, yeah, so they've, there are like 68 of them. Yeah, so I believe not, you're right. Not many. Um, so that's probably why there's, um, you know, you, you're only going to shill your own bags, right? So uh, if there's not enough people shilling their bags. <laughs> um, well, I mean, part of this is that we're not currently in a, in a phase where rarity is really valued. So, I mean, back in the early times, people really traded on rarity. It's, you know, 2017, 2018, probably up through, I'm not sure when, but um, rarity was always a premium. And so the punks that had the rarity, you know, you, you, really, you really felt that more when, when people were talking about them than, they, than you do now. It's, it's quite you, different. It's quite different. Yeah. And how do you, I mean, does rarity come into collecting for you or is it just purely aesthetic? Oh, no. Uh, well, like I said, uh, there was two phases. And I discussed the first one where we did the claim. And it was hard to gauge what the rarity actually was because we didn't have any numbers on it. You could only see the 10,000 grid. And I think when you, you know, zoomed into a punk that you could see, the, see which traits there were. But you couldn't really calculate or establish any percentages because we didn't have the data yet. So in that phase, it was purely aesthetics. Um, but within a couple of weeks, we had a spreadsheet and we knew what, exactly what the rarities were. And I think Matt and John added all of that to the website. So once the claim period was over, I switched over to collecting by rarity, almost predominantly. So, I mean, the first two punks, the first punk that I bought, if I'm not wrong, was the Zero Trait Genesis. Um, and then I bought the other one a couple of days later because there were only eight. Yeah, that's that's crazy. How so? The, I think I've got it now. So that's Punk six four one, right? So it's a Dev Punk as well. Yeah, uh, six four one and and ten fifty. I think I got the ten fifty first. Yeah, June twenty oh, fourth, wow. which is one day after trading more or less began. That's crazy. So you got two zero trades. That's insane. Yeah, they were they were my initial targets because you know once once we understood the rarity, um, you know. Everybody involved in crypto likes math, more or less. And so, again, like, rare, like we, it was the first collection with attributes in this way. And so, rarity was like two weeks new as a concept. And so, everyone was digesting what that meant and what was going to be valuable and what wasn't, just in terms of collecting art. But uh, you could see with it, you know, with it. There be only being eight zero traits. There wasn't there wasn't much that was much or more rare than that. So I went after. I made it a goal to get those two. So Token Angels has got two, and you've got two. And they um, just for reference as well for listeners, the last sale, or the last two sales were over five hundred ETH. That's insane. Yeah, um, and, and that's actually a little bit less than you know some of us would see them at. I mean, given their rarity, but that's what the market is from currently. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're rarer than the apes, right? So there's 24 apes. 
Yeah, but I mean, but the price is lower for sure. Yeah. And your ape is pretty clean too, and just a uh, a forward hat and earring. Yeah, yeah. I chose that. I chose him. That's why he looks like that. Um, because uh, Straybits and I did a deal, and um, he he graciously he graciously allowed me to choose um, which ape I would like in that in the in the deal we did. So I chose this one. What did what did you trade him for it? Well, he he bid on one of my tiaras, which I really liked. Um, and as I was mentioning earlier, I really like these tiaras. So he bid on a choker tiara, the one choker tiara. And um, I wasn't, I didn't really want to give it up. So we ended up discussing a little bit, and we uh, we did a trade where I sent in two tiaras, and then they offered me the eight for one eight. Oh, that's um, cool. And um, what I like about this is like there wasn't a way to do trades back then, so the Punks Discord community was pretty tight back then, and you know people trusted each other, and so we just we just swapped them basically without that. That's super in cool. A true trust, yeah, in a trusted way, in a trusted. Way. So, so how long after your claim did you find yourself in the the Punks Discord? Um, almost immediately because that was the only place you could go to talk about them. So I think, I, I think, you know, within days, Matt and John had a Discord link on the website, and you could just talk in there. So from the beginning, was was it token gated back then as well, or had they figured out how to do that? No, not um, no, it wasn't token gated at all. Anybody could join. Nice, which and, was really um, great. I, I still, I still. I still miss. Uh, I miss when everybody was there. So, so, do you um do you remember like who was there at the time? So, I think you mentioned Stray Bits, but uh, anybody else you, you were hanging out with that's still around today? Probably, yeah. I mean, Matt and John were there. Me and Alex was there. Um, TA was there. I think all original claimers, more or less, were there. Uh, you know. Um, Snowfro was there. Like I mean, everybody who is is still involved now was there. I mean, there weren't many people there. Like the Discord had probably, you know, twenty or thirty people total for quite a while. You'd, you'd go in and be like sixteen online, twenty-one That's nice, online. That's nice. It's uh, nice and cozy, right? Just nerding out it, about something. Sure, like, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Just different, just different. Oh, nice. And and um, I forgot to ask you this as well, but how did how did you find the claiming process? Like, what was that claiming process for you like? Um, um I guess it was a learning experience. I don't think I'd ever uh, used Ethereum in that way before. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the other people you've interviewed have gone over the same process, but you had to interact with the contract itself because. Um, the site wasn't Web3 yet. It was only Web3 later in the uh, trading process. So you had to go over to the, you had to do a lot of things. You had to go over to the contract on Ethereum, enter in a bunch of stuff to get yourself going and then, you know, type in the right stuff and make sure you didn't overpay because all the prices were in Gwei. So it was a learning experience, which is good because. 
then you learned about you learned about Ethereum. And, and uh, to claim your first 70, 72 punks, did you do that in one sitting or was that like over a few days? No, it was in probably a couple hours, two, three hours. Oh, so it was relatively quick. Yeah, I mean, maybe four, maybe four or five hours, I don't know. And, and, and why did you stop at uh, 72? Did you just, you know, I think I've, I've exhausted all the aesthetically, aesthetically beautiful ones, I'm, I'm done, or... Um... You know, honestly, I, I've heard other people saying this too, but like, I do, you know, it was awesome. And like, but there was a feeling like, you know, that's enough for me. Let's leave some for other people. I, I've heard a lot of people, other people say that too, that, you know, they, they loved the process, but they wanted other people to have them too. It's like, there was a real feeling of like, well, I don't need to, I don't need to be greedy here. I, I've uh, gotten more than probably I need. So, but also I think I reached, I think I'd reached the, uh, I'd only sent over one ether to my wallet to pay for transaction costs. And so I think I was either at the end of that or, or near at the end of that. So I probably just stopped there. Plus, as I, as I was saying earlier, once I got close to a hundred dollars in transaction fees, uh, I don't know. Part of me, there was a voice in my head saying, "Maybe that's enough to spend on this." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's 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 super cool. Uh, what a story, and what a sort of journey. And um, uh, and I think you said you sold. You had another account that you sold a little bit as well. But um, d- during that sort of massive bull run up in 2021, you, you had you know no deep desire to liquidate or sell too many, like. You had that much conviction with punks to to hang on all this time. I'm not sure if it's conviction or what, but I mean, I always loved these guys really deeply, and I remember when people started selling during that run at different times. It always surprised me a little bit because you know someone's like, "Oh, this is my uh, punk off forever," and then for good reasons they sell it, you know, and at a price that is going to make a difference in their lives. I don't know. I, I I I didn't have I didn't have a desire to sell them then, um, and maybe perhaps because I had sold a lot in twenty twenty, and um, every time I sold something, the price kept going up. Might have been part of it, but um, I'm happy with how things are now. I think the punks community is continued to go forward, and teams, even though we're in a bear market, it's continued to go forward. So. I don't really have any regrets about it. That's uh, that's awesome. I mean, uh, yeah, and I think you've maintained a beautiful collection too, man. I think uh, I'm not sure who. I'm just gonna go back and have a quick look at the other um, major punk holders. Are Bill Wilcox is the only one that stands out, but the other wallets seem to be right. anonymous. Right. <clears throat> um, well, they're not listed on the website, but I, most of us don't know who they are. So um, let's see. The number two one, obviously, is Eagle Labs with 420. Then I believe number three is uh, Flamingo Dow. Oh, wow. Okay. Then you have uh, Wilcox, and then you have um, Seth. Then you have uh, Mr. 703 at number six, and then yeah. I mashed up. <clears throat> so yeah, they're not all, they're not all obvious there, but if, if you've um, been around a little bit, then 
Yeah, yeah. And and talk about Yuga Labs as well. So, the, I mean, they've got most of the dev punks, and I see you've got a few dev punks as well. Do you place any special significance on having a dev punk as well, or? Uh... I mean, it's nice. There's a story there. I never uh, made it a goal of mine or felt especially strongly about it. I mean, there are a thousand of them, so 10% of everything is dev punks, so it's not exactly that rare. But I think anytime you trade a punk to or from someone, there's a connection and a nice story there. And uh, so obviously, you know, having Matt or John be the original owners as well as the creators is interesting. So for the story aspect, yeah. Being on the Discord that early, did you um, did you manage to get into autoglyphs as well? I didn't. You know, I didn't really understand ge- uh, gen art at that time, or even for a little while afterwards. So I didn't really understand the significance of it. I didn't have a gen art background. I didn't really know about what had happened in the '60s with you know the pioneers. So when they released autoglyphs, um, I didn't make the connection. That's cool. And what about now? How do you feel about Gen Art? I like it. Um, I like it a lot. I've enjoyed collecting some things on on your art blocks. I think I'm I'm, I'm more partial to faces. Um, just personally, though, so so things which have an obvious human element to it appeal to me a little more easily than um, things that don't. But um, I'm a big fan of Gen Art, sure. Are you collecting much these days, or are you just basically just sitting sitting on what you've currently got? I mean, I've honestly been spending most of my year creating things digitally, so I find collecting to be quite time-consuming because I end up doing a lot of research and comparing things and then looking at the market and so on. And, and uh, I guess sometime in the last two years, I've been mostly creating things, either with AI or different kinds of collabs. Which has been really enjoyable, and I've spent almost all of my time doing that, as opposed to collecting other arts. Well, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about the things you've been creating and, and building? I think there's there's two projects that I'm aware of. One is called Guardians, and the other one's Zoo Exori. They're both sort of relatively interesting. Do you want to talk about Guardians first and what that is and how, how that came about? Yeah, sure. So Guardians is a AI project which came out. Uh, last October, that'd be October, I'm sorry, August of 22, <clears throat> um, which I think is sort of at the big, I don't know, you, you can begin at different times, but uh, it was a little bit before the, not long before the huge AI art surge we had, but kind of at the beginning of it. So it's it's 99 images of celestial beings from, you know, birthed in mid-journey. I was... Uh, Introduced to, to AI art um, by uh, Artblocks uh, artist DCA, who had been doing some experimenting with it. And um, I guess part of the backstory here is that my whole life, I've spent most of my creative time on creating stories with words. And then I've always wanted to do visual things. And so AI really felt in, fell in my backyard in terms of being able to do visual things. Uh, using only words. It was almost like it was... Well, I mean, meant for me and a lot of other visual thinkers who might, have not, might not have the training in visual arts. So, um, 
I plunged into that and uh, created that collection in like a sort of like an, a no sleeping one week uh, flurry, um, which was a awesome, beautiful, inspirational for myself because uh, for the first time I can create um, visual art. Now the the they're beautiful. I think um, just I guess for the listeners as well, it's called the collection is called Guardians. But essentially, what they are is they they basically they look like all angels or guardian angels in each of the images, um, which are really cool. What, why did you pick that as a, a theme? Is that some some sort of special meaning for you? Right. So you know, as when you use AI, you have a seed phrase or like a you know a text string that creates your image and. This was the first text string that I could think of that re- related to what these ended up being. You know, by the time I finished Guardians, like I hadn't done any experimentation whatsoever. But the first text string that I used to create Guardian 1 was basically, was the first string that I ever typed in the mid-journey. Um, I kind of sat there for a while, like, what do I actually want to see? When you can see anything, you know, it's quite... Um, interesting what you're going to type what are you going to type when you can see anything that you can that you can anything you can imagine so i waited a little while i typed in a string that became guardians and i liked the results so much that i didn't experiment with anything else um for months actually just variations on this, this one string so yeah so this is why this is why we they turned out the way they did because I mean, I didn't know what what Mid Journey was gonna visually represent, um, but this is the imagination that I had going in. That this is what I wanted to see more than anything else when I was experimenting with Mid Journey, and this is how Mid Journey represented them visually. So it was a shock to me because I didn't know what I was, what was, how it was gonna turn out, and I was quite happy with it. Uh, the beautiful. You know, I want to say one thing about AI art, which is really interesting, is that. I don't know if you've, you've felt this yourself when, if you've been using it, but there's this beautiful detachment in the end product because I feel like when, you know, I didn't move my hand to create any of these. Like I actually, I did, I actually did zero manual work to create any of these images, but they're still a product of my imagination. And I think that distance allows for a distance in the final product. And I notice that when people say things about the art, I don't really respond as in someone who physically created or manually created it themselves. There's like a, I know that the AI did it without my instruction. So I, I wonder if gen artists feel the same way where uh, if someone says they appreciate the art, I'm able to respond differently to it. It's, it's less emotional, less personal, but still connected. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for you? I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Um, I like it. I like it a lot because I don't know. Just in real life, if someone gives me a compliment or says something, sometimes I, I don't know. Somewhere it gets stuck somewhere between where it interacts with whatever previous emotions I had about the process or or what I wanted it to look like, you know. And none of these images are what I wanted it to look like. They're just how they were represented. Do you think um, perhaps? It's less emotional attachment because, or, or I mean, because it's, it's in some ways being a little bit less vulnerable. I think when you 
you know, craft something, paint something, and are so focused on the outcome. I mean, you were in absolute control of that. And if you were to get comments on it, I mean, you're basically putting yourself out there a little bit more. Whereas with AI, it's um, it's less vulnerable in, in, in some senses, if that makes sense. Yeah, precisely. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, I know with things that I've created in the past, it's like, oh, did people get my intention or did they not get my intention? And there's this whole like uh, sort of, you know, dance that happens emotionally with people's responses. And I just noted that absolutely uh, absent um, in terms of the AI. Do you, do you paint or do you sculpt or like what's your, outside of digital art, like what do you, what do you normally do? Um, I use words. So like I'm a, I've, I've done a lot of writing. So I've, okay. I've, I've, written, I've written stories. That was just the, uh, my art, artistic toolbox was basically words. Well, why don't you talk to us about Zoo Exori? Um, because I think this is probably a bit more your, uh, your kind of artwork, right? It was for sure. Yeah. Well, maybe if you can explain, you know, what exactly Zuex Ori is, um, and I'll, I'll make sure I put the links into, um, yeah, into the show notes. So Zuex Ori is a is a long form written story um, published on the blockchain in collaboration with the wonderful artist Undead Lou, who did the artwork uh, for it, and so we we dropped it on Nifty Gateway back in 2022. But it's a story that I was working on for many years before that. In fact, it, it, it actually, I'll probably get the story in a second, but it ties into the punk's uh, story because I was working on this story in an earlier version, earlier form, during 2017 when I was buying punks. So I'd be working on the story. This is after the claim period. I'd be working on the story and you know, writing can be quite solitary especially after you've been doing it you know, week after week, month after month. So part of my, like, I guess, escape would be checking, like, the punks that were for sale, you know, that October, that November, when nobody, nobody really, after the initial glow had worn off, you know, punks were quite inexpensive. And so my release from working on the Zulex story story would be checking price, punk prices and picking up punks that were... Uh, you know, word one and by their current owners. But back to the project. This story is a, it's a reincarnation sequel to Romeo and Juliet, which I spent several years doing. It's written in 12 episodes. So I, I chose a, I didn't want to choose chapters. I chose a style where I thought might work more for like a Netflix type um, presentation. Where like every every story is broken down. So, so it's so the current say, day. So when yeah, you say re, re, reincarnation of Roman Juliet, like, what does it actually mean? Like, literally, what what you say it means? Like Romeo and Juliet come back to life. Yeah, precisely. Uh, so we're, so we're working in sort of like a mythological genre of story, where instead of like ghosts or superheroes or psychics being um, you know the motif. It's it's working with the the idea of reincarnation, which actually which hasn't gotten that much airtime in terms of movies or other types of entertainment. I think, and it, which is partially why it's really appealing to me. 
aside from all like the other like phys- philosophical or like human ideas that go into a concept like reincarnation. So, I mean, I, I was really interested to tell a story, a modern story that takes place in the present um, that would go into, you know, ex- experientially the idea of like, you know, what happens if you have an experience where you have uh, like an um, experience of the past, you know, yourself in the past. Um, and instead of just like taking it from there and saying, oh, Romeo and Juliet are back and now they're doing this. I, I really wanted to make an exploration <laughs> of their emotions. And, and, you know, what happens when like you have an experience like that? How do you relate to other people? Like, how does it change your view of life? You know, what does it say about your past and future? Things like that. So um, that's what that is. Are you religious? Do you, do you believe in reincarnation yourself? Um, I try not to believe in things for the sake of belief. Um, I think it's a really interesting idea that it's really hard to explore because there's no really proof or disproof of it, and there's not a great way to gather evidence about it other than, well, you know, like there's a few little studies here and there, but I think it's an interesting idea and um, makes sense in certain like human development type ways. Uh, that's uh, super cool. I'll have to definitely give this a read um, and I'll, I'll put the, sh- the link in the show notes so everybody can access it as well. But I, th- I think one last question is, well, what, Zoo Ex Ori, like what, what does that actually mean? How did you come up with a title for that? Right. So those are the characters. Uh, so the reincarnated Juliet is someone named Zoo and um, reincarnated Romeo is named Ori. And uh, so, yeah, so they're, they're, they're high school age kids in New York City. Um, and the story unfolds about how they reconnect. And uh, and I just I just saw the um, a one of one piece on Nifty Gateway as well. Is that the only piece that was released in relation to in relation to the project? Uh, no, there are twelve pieces. Um, yeah, I want to say a bit more about that. So the artwork on Nifty Gateway and Open Sea is by Undead Loop. And she's uh, just this incredibly ta- talented, uh, one of my favorite artists from an Italian crypto artist. And so we worked together for an entire year uh, quite closely um, with the text and finding. Uh, so she made one artwork for every episode, basically, that represented what happened in the episode. So there are 12 artworks. Uh, there's a few different editions of some of them. And um, I, I mean, I think like her art speaks to me in a lot of in a lot of on a lot of di- on a lot of different levels. And the reason I did this is because I fully I've always felt a little bit handicapped working with words and writing because we live in such a visual society now. You know, everything is like everything's quite visual, and uh, it's hard to pass a story when you have to write it. So I wanted to do a project where you can start to see some of the storyline and images a little bit easier. And in the same vein, I'm, we're, there's more to come. I'm currently working with uh, another artist, and we're going to release a comic version of the story as NFTs. And so we're going episode by episode, but the first episode um, is basically just about ready, and we're working on the release mechanics. So... Hopefully everybody will get to see the story and easily 
you know, readable or visual format um, sometime this year. Amazing. Um, yeah, d- definitely let us know when that's out, man. Would love to uh, love to have a read of that. Um, yeah, I won't. I won't, announce, I won't announce the artist quite yet. It's someone that is quite talented, and keep it a surprise for now. Uh, exciting. So, what one one question I didn't ask you is, what is the story behind your handle, Sov? So, Sov means sleep in different Scandinavian languages. Um, it's a word. It's a word that means sleep, and. I didn't choose it for that reason, but um, it became a word that was personal to me. So when we had to pick a handle in Discord, uh, I was searching for what to put down, and uh, came this came out because, uh, well, the story is this is a very odd story, but um, and maybe it makes sense, and maybe it doesn't. But I was traveling through Scandinavia with um, with uh, with my cat, and yeah, and traveling with the cat isn't we just like it was like planes, trains, uh, cars, a lot of traveling, and um, the cat was quite nervous. So I would say this word, I would say the word "so" to it over and over again like dozens of times to calm it down and um, like a hundred times and it would work. Like, you know, I, I would get the cat so that its eyes would start to get heavy and it would, you know, sometimes fall asleep. I'd get the cat to fall asleep. <laughs> and the, the, what resulted from this, it became like a mantra because I would say this word like at different times over and over and over again. And we like out loud, and it got in my energy. And when Discord time came around several years later, this is what came out. So it's completely weird, but that's the story. That's a that's a cute story. I might try to use it on my uh, little little doggy. He's uh he's he's super super hyper. So I did try and get it to sleep a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there was a nice tie-in with like the word. It's kind of short for sovereign, which is kind of what crypto is all about. So that fit in nicely, but it wasn't the origin, and it had nothing to do with store store value, which sometimes I get. <laughs> it's, it's not an SOV thing, and, you know. When NFT started, I don't think anyone is even talking about them in terms of store value. That's super cool. Um, and. If, if you look into, I guess, the, the punk community and you've been around for quite some time, um, do, do you ha- have any favorite punk personalities worth mentioning? Much of what I love about digital art is that it's such a community thing. So, you know, I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel warmth for anybody who's taking an interest in punks or any kind of digital art, who's posting about them, who's helping to uh, move this type of community forward and so often like often it's like people posting on twitter who, who may have punks who i don't even know but if if they're saying something authentic from like a, a genuine like community focused art centric place that really resonates with me so it's it's not always so much the influences or the people who maybe are best known in the community but um 
I guess that's what I had to say. And if you had to describe punk culture in a few words, like how would you describe that for you? It's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, is punk culture really different than NFT or crypto art culture? Hmm. What do you think? Um, I, I think it's different. I mean, if you have a look at various sort of collections, um, you just vibe on different things. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, people rocking a punk on their Twitter and using it as a digital identity, it signals certain values about what you believe in um, and what the community is about. So for me, absolutely it does. Um, a little bit. Yeah, no, about, I see yeah. what you mean. I, I see what you mean. Like, clearly, all among the different collections, there's different vibes and different uh, types of participants for sure. And so, I think what a lot of people would resonate with among the punks is. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to say earliness, but based on their earliness, there was an original vibe of like being there for building something on Ethereum and trying something innovating and. The inclusiveness of the uh, the collection being free to claimers and very available and open. Uh, you know, it, when you ask the question, it it really makes me think of uh, the early Discord days, where um, it, the community was small, but everyone was there for more or less the same reasons. And like it was quite exciting and novel because it was completely new, uh, but based on like you know this innovation and in technology and blockchain. Uh, and and culture in a way. So if those are the kind of things that um, come to mind for you when you're speaking about it, then I completely agree. Absolutely. I think those things that you sort of mentioned too, and it's kind of interesting when you relate it to, you know, how the collection was free, available and open. I mean, it's it's hard to fake that symbolically, right? Just because of how the collection was created. And uh, and I think it sort of forms some of the values and ethos in terms of what what punks are. I mean, for me anyway. Comple completely, completely. And that was what made so much of the early vibes so beautiful because what Matt and John laid into the space with the way they chose to relate the, to release the project was just so evident with everybody there. So uh, people were there for for those reasons, and that's what made it interesting and interactive and i think it led ultimately to a lot of success in it 100 percent. how how do you feel about v1 punks such an interesting topic i want to ask you a question have do you do you feel like you've been part of a comprehensive like discussion about this where like all sides are considered and you get to the bottom of it just curious look i i i, I get because i'm relatively objective right and i think me coming from a an accounting sort of background, you know, need to be objective about things. And there are there are facts and there are emotions. And I think when you sort of peel it all back, I think the emotions are going to dissipate at some stage, and we're just going to be left with facts. And the question is, is well, what are the what are those facts, and what do they sort of play into the story around CryptoPunks? Um, so for me. Um, they 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 play a part of the punk story, um, but uh, I, I don't think that. I, I think 
maybe the way that some of the V1 punks have tried to come onto the scene has been quite antagonizing for for the punk community. Um, and so I can sort of feel that there is some um, emotional sort of resentment towards that, right? So I can understand both sides and I'm not trying to push one or the other. I'm just purely curious and exploring this because every single time I have a chat to a punk on Punkcast, I, I learn new things myself. And to be honest with you, when it probably wasn't up until when I interviewed Sean Bonner, uh, I had a very negative view of V1 punks. Um, I hadn't even spent the time to really delve in and really understand what they were. And I think after that conversation that I had with them on podcast, that I sort of went away and did a little bit more homework and understood what it was. Now, having said all that, you know, the reason why I think punks are going to be special for a long, long time is because of their ability to retain attention for a prolonged period of time. And I think V1 punks is one of those conversations that just keeps punks interesting. And so I think in all of that, having said that, right or wrong, good or bad, attention and discourse is a really great thing to have in, a, in our collection, right? It's, um, it's a positive thing uh, to, to actually have people interested in talking about it. I'd be more worried if people weren't talking about CryptoPunks, to be honest. Yeah. What did you learn with Sean that, um, that was different from what you're, you knew before? Well, I mean, I, I think I was quite dismissive of them. To be honest with you, I hadn't really thought much about V1 punks. I, I just felt like, you know, when I jumped into the, the punks discord, there was a lot of negative, uh, almost like, I wouldn't say hate, but just negative uh, sentiment towards V1 punks. And I can understand why, you know, so, you know, the, it, feel, it feels a little bit grifty um, and they want to get legitimized. And just in terms of how they were talking about it and, and, and interacting with some of the V1 punks on, on Twitter at some stages as well, they were just quite antagonizing. And so for me, I was very, very dismissive. But that conversation with Sean, he just put me in my spot. Because um, I, I think I mentioned um, on, the, on that chat, like I, I put V1 punks in the same bucket as funks. Because I, th- I sort of felt like the funk community, you know, Paul and all those guys were involved in V1s as well. I think they are to some extent. And I think that just felt super grifted to me and I just didn't want to be part of it. But as he sort of told me, he goes, actually, you know, these are, these are punks. You know, when the claimers claim punks, they claim, actually claim the V1 punks, not the V2 punks. You know, when they went out with the initial contract, Matt and John went out thinking that this was actually the final. So it wasn't a draft. It was actually, you know, Matt and John saying, hey, this is our finished published work. Uh, it wasn't until after the fact that, um, that they sort of figured it out that there was a bug. And so... So it was, I mean, those are objective facts, right? Um, and, and the thing is like, you know, you, we, get, we celebrate Punk's birthday. Now, what, what date is the birth of CryptoPunks? It's a little bit weird, right? Because I think this year, I think we, you know, we're sending out tweets on, on, on the actual date when the V1 contract was, was born, right? Um, but then not celebrate V1 Punks. But if you actually go into the, the contract address on the, um, on the Punk website, they all start from the same date right? On the 23rd of June, yeah. as opposed to the 17th right. of June. So, right. so there's some legitimacy there that I just didn't understand and nuances there that I didn't understand. And so um, I'm not sort of suggesting that V1 punks um, are, are, are threatening to V2 punks. I don't think that'll ever happen at all. I mean, the real value is in V2 punks or crypto punks because that's the punk that everybody was using to build all the equity that we have today as a community. Right. Um, they didn't, they weren't using a V1 punk to do it. They were using a, a crypto punk um, all this time. 
So yeah, so that's that's sort of my my sort of take on it. But what what about you? You've been, you've, you've been quiet on on this. Like you've been um, where, where do you sort of sit on this? I've been very quiet. I haven't said much at all, and I'm not sure I want to. Part of me does. I'm not sure. Um, let me start by saying like the whole thing has been like confusing to a lot of people with a lot of antagonism, as I'm sure you know, and heartbreaking in different ways, in many different ways to see different things. Um, well, I mean, I certainly, I don't even think of them as V1 or V2. There's nothing V2 about the punks that we're trading. It's not like they're any, the artwork is any different. That's one thing I often come back to um, thinking myself. I mean, there was certainly a V2 contract, which these tokens were born out of, and a original contract, which those tokens were, were born out of. And as we know, in Ethereum, no two tokens are the same, but the artwork is the same. So it's an interesting uh, lens to look at it in terms of the artwork being the same. And of course, the backgrounds are not even part of the CryptoPunks artwork, I believe. And so you have the blue for the ones that we've been dealing with from the beginning and uh, they're going to make us just like purple for the other one. So those aren't even added by, those aren't even part of like, I guess Matt and John chose the blue. But neither of those were even on the contract and that's what differentiates them on OpenSea. I mean, I certainly don't think of CryptoPunks as VTR because nothing changed about you must have a lot of E1s, or are you still hanging on to them, or what are you doing with them? Have you wrapped them? Or... Yeah, I have them all. I have them all. I have 108. Is it a thumbs up or thumbs down from, from Sov in terms of E1 punks? <laughs> okay, so I haven't traded any. I haven't moved any of them. Um, the story I follow is that what the reason, a lot of the reason punks are where they are is because of the community that was around them in the beginning. And so the tokens we were trading are the, the ones that, you know, you trade on the CryptoPunks website currently. So those are the ones that, like, those are the ones that rose with this wave in 2021 and beyond. And I, I, I do think there's, for me, like, it does raise a couple questions with a later introduction of, you know, the tokens from the earlier contract. And I haven't heard this view expressed, but like sometimes I wonder about, you know, what, what happens to people who bought punks um, like any time before, you know, the V1s, um, you know, were, were more widely known. And what I'm saying is this, it's like, those people felt, which whoever, whoever the buyers were, I can only assume they felt like they were buying the one and only CryptoPunks. And then for it to be known that there's another token later on, I just, I just wonder how that transaction like feels to someone who bought a punk you know, earlier on. Like, I think it's, it's, there's, like an, there's like an interesting ethical thing to like dive into there. So if you bought the V1 token and then subsequent, but I mean, if you bought the V1 token, you would have received the V2, right? Um, okay. So nobody bought any V1s for a long, long time because we stopped trading them on the contract. So do all V2s have a V1 or, or not? 
it's an interesting question, actually. Or we should ask um, We it, the, Unless something really strange happened. I mean, there's always like one or two things that happen with contracts, but for the most part, yeah, they're identical. Mm. There that might be one or two that... There might be one or two that, for whatever reason, don't. But I have no, I don't. I really don't know about that. Yeah, because if they weren't all claimed um, when the contract was changed, uh, I'm, I don't think. And you only claim the V two. Presumably, there is no V one, right? I guess Unless what I'm the- really saying in short. I guess what I'm really saying in short is like, if somebody bought a punk, and then later heard that there was something that is being called the original CryptoPunk. Like, how does that person feel about their purchase? And should the seller do something to, uh, I'm not even going to say rectify because it's so far in the future, but like, how does the, how do the seller and buyer meet about a fair transaction when it's introduced at a later point that there's something that people are going to call an original token? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I think it's a hard one to answer, right? It is a hard um, one. It is a hard one. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't go back in the future and do and Sorry, you can't go back in the past and do anything about it. Um, I guess I would say the usage of the words original and official might not be the ones I would pick, though, for that reason. Well, then what do you, I mean, assuming, are you saying the, the, the V2 punks, you wouldn't be calling official and original then? Well, I think most of those words were part of the release of the V1 token. So, I mean, there was nothing official about it. You know, the punks were currently trading on a website when we were trading them in the beginning. They were just the punks. It's, um, it's such an interesting topic and, it, and I can sort of see how it can get quite emotion, emotive and divisive within the community if not, not uh, spoken about properly. So I think like these one-on-one conversations are a little bit easier. I think when a little bit, a little bit, when you're having it with a group conversation, everybody has their own views, and um, you know, punks being uh, rebellious and counterculture and independent thinkers, uh, everyone's got a view, and I don't think you can ever keep the punk community happy. But um, I mean, I think there's been a lot of unnecessary animosity because, um, and it's financial related in both ways. You know, like people who have either token probably are hoping that their token appreciates and that ends up being part of the conversation in a lot of conscious and unconscious ways and it becomes divisive in that way. Um, you know, clearly if these weren't worth much on either side, it'd be a lot easier conversation probably just like a lot of laughs and a few beers, which would be quite pleasant and fun, I think. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it'd be interesting to sort of see how this plans out. But I, but I, but I, look, for me is I, I hope um, I hope that uh, it just drives more attention and value accretion back to punks, um, and that you know we can all get get along. And and most of us sort of do for the most part, by and large. I think um, but I think there's just a, a few you know st- sticky pricklers out there um, that hopefully will just uh, uh, play ball as time goes on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, it's there's a bit of drama here, but ultimately, it's just part of the um, story of crypto art going forward, and um, which I think is far more important than any of the divisions within it. The fact that there is a culture around Ethereum tokens, and that 
people do interact and relate and and do things differently than were done traditionally. I mean, the bigger picture here is like so much more important than all this. All right, cool. That, yeah, one hundred percent. I want to ask you another question. How, how did you feel about Matt and John selling Punk's IP to to Yuga? Um, well, sure, surprise, of course, but um. I mean, I don't have a problem with Yuga buying it, if that's what you mean. Or I don't have a problem with them selling it either. I wish they were, of course, still around more directly with the community. That was something I think everyone grieved for a little bit. But I also understand um, that it became more difficult for them to uh, do what they wanted to do in 2021. Things were quite hostile in a lot of ways. And so they were on the receiving end of that uh, as the creators quite a bit. And um, I don't think that's what they wanted to do. So. Very understandable that they chose to do what they did. Um, so I understand it. And I, I mean, I don't have a problem with it at all. I think you you just been a decent steward. A, a decent steward? Yeah, I think so too. A decent think, steward, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, uh, I think they've been thoughtful. I mean, Natalie and Noah um, have been quite thoughtful about taking their time to think through how to deal with punks. And the good thing is that, that nothing materials changed yet. Um, but net net, I think there's general value of creativeness to sort of come out of it. Right. So, so which is good. And if you could pass on a message to the next owner of punk one, five, one, nine, what would you like to say to him? Just do the right thing. Do the right thing. I don't even know what that means, but like, <laughs> I think it's great when they, I think it's great when these punks go on to different owners and find different lives in different ways, and that's all up to the new people. So, uh, the only thing you can do is like do what you think is right. Sov, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, always love uh, chatting and connecting with punk claimers. Um, what what a story and what a collection. Um, so appreciate you spending time on Punkcast this morning. Uh, I guess any final closing comments on your side and, you know, what's the best way for people to find you? Um, Discord is best. Twitter is also works. Yeah, it's been super nice chatting with you, um, Max. And um, look forward to more conversations in the future. Guys, uh, that wraps up an episode of Punkcast for the week. And uh, we'll be back next week with another amazing punk. Bye for now. Bye.